it definitely feels like we tend to um, trend more towards uh, towards just in general disagreement than agreement, right? And so you could have like 90% of agreement on a topic with somebody, but you always focus on that 10% that's the disagreement. What exactly is the state of discourse on our college campuses nowadays? We've seen a lot happen in the past couple weeks, and things are in turmoil. But it's important to discuss how do we respond to these protests? What aspects are driving the narratives on both sides? Today, we'll talk about that with the guest Andre Arifin here on Talks with Toe. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talks with Toe. We are here in maybe near the end of quarantine life. We don't really know, but I'm joined today by good friend Andre Arifin. Andre, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Good to see you all. Yeah, so um, how long have we known each other? It's been probably close to like six-ish years. Yeah, freshman year of college. So that would have been 2013. So we're pushing seven years now, yeah. Yeah, that that's also crazy. So um, you obviously went to UCLA as well, as people have probably guessed yeah. at this point. Um, what did you study at UCLA? Uh, I changed my major a lot, but I, I landed in a study called Geography and Environmental Studies. Um, and my focus, which they only have a minor at UCLA for right now, was Geospatial Information Systems and Technologies, or GIS, which some more people are probably familiar with, the short term. And based on that uh, description, how would you describe that major in like lay terms? Uh, the major itself was, when it came to geography, it's kind of uh, a, a bundle of political, anthropological, different aspects of just the world in general. So it was, it's not just like studying a map and like boundaries and like where countries are and that to like an extent that is an aspect of it um but uh especially since i took the environmental science uh focus of the geography major it had more of an emphasis on you know we'd study soil and we'd study like trees and tree species and how to identify those trees and then with the gis uh inclusion of that it was you can use computer systems to uh, use satellite imagery to study like lakes and their and forest systems and so it has a it has a huge variety and a huge array of different geographical aspects. I don't really yeah I don't know how to make it like any more simple. Nice. Okay. So um, obviously, like we've had, I guess a couple years out of college, what has that journey been like? Um, are you even using your major at all? <laughs> mm. um, I am currently not using it uh, for work purposes, um, but it, it is uh, it is actually like something that I decently often like look into specifically just to see how the technology has advanced um, the different ways they're using satellites now, um, 
and even like the way they're able to compare data, the way they're able to receive and process different light uh, frequencies to like to uh, and, uh, uh, just like identify specific species that they're looking at, whether it's trees or plants and stuff like that. Um, I just think the technology is really interesting. And then on the on the off side, my cousin uh, is just constantly pecking at me to come work for his uh, ecological uh, nonprofit and do GIS for them. But for the most part, I have I don't uh, don't use it frequently. Okay, cool. Um, so obviously, we kind of talked a little bit about. Um, what you're doing now and how we're going to try to keep it vague for <laughs> purposes of your work. Yes. Um, but describe that journey and how you ended up where you are now, um, what that decision process was like, and um, I guess just what you've learned throughout the past, I guess, almost three years now that um, you've been doing what you're doing. Yeah. So for a couple years, so I work for a, a nonprofit. And for a couple of years, I was uh, specifically focused on college campuses, training students um, as like student leaders, um, how to engage, uh, how to engage with people and learning about different worldviews and different perspectives that people have, the way they see the world um, and how that forms their beliefs, but then also like their actions, their habits, the way they not only see the world, but the way that makes them interact with the world mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Um, and, then util and then utilizing that, we can uh, help students um, develop, you know, integrity and leadership and different ways of like being able to lead well um, in a way that uh, encourages the people that they're leading and themselves to operate healthily um, and for the benefit of the people around them, everybody, hopefully, um, to the extent that that's possible. Um, to now, I'm switching over to more of a role that's going to uh, emphasize traveling overseas um, and being able to resource people overseas with uh, material to of like training in terms of similar kind of qualities. Um, so yeah, uh, at this point, it'll be a travel and resource type of role with this nonprofit. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, I guess, obviously, like the college campus environment is pretty unique period in most people's lives. Um, what are some things that you've kind of just seen over the years that you've really noticed are areas that are challenging for um, students in general, and maybe people who work with students too? Challenging for students. Um, well, I think a, I think a big thing that um, can easily be overlooked, depending on um, your uh, social circles, uh, is uh, is is just the impact of the. I think like the necessity of college and. Uh, I think the way that it impacts uh, lower income people, people of color, um, people who can't just go to college, but have to go to college, but then also work to pro help provide family. Um, and I think, uh, especially now with like the pandemic and colleges uh, 
for the most part, I just switching over to Zoom, but then still charging the same tuition and all of that. I think it, it it's really telling and showing a lot of the difficulties that uh, that a lot of students um, are just experiencing within like, especially like the UC systems here um, from what I know, um, but I'm assuming nationwide with the colleges. Um, yeah, I think there's also, I think it's interesting being uh, on a college campus and uh, it, it's interesting to see how like students, uh, how willing they are to engage with ideas that are different than theirs. Um, because even at like UCLA the last couple of years um, with like Trump being in the presidency, there are some like very evident extremists who would come into like the free speech areas and just like the dissent that you'd get between students um, and and these like, not not protesters, I don't know what I'd call them, advocates, I suppose, of like certain policies and stuff. Um, and while they would never end up violent, the the conversation was never charitable and it was never profitable in any means. It just turns into like a yelling match, if anything. So mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to see, I think the way that uh, we engage with ideas and the people around us that are different than ourselves. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's definitely true. Um, like we're in a time where I think, I'm not entirely sure if college really prepares people to engage those mm. conversations well, um, at least not from like the actual curriculum standpoint. Yeah. Um, and I've kind of noticed that more as I've left college and just been out of it. Uh, but obviously like we might have differing opinions on uh, that, but I think that there are a lot more, there's less like actual debating that goes on, like constructive debating that goes on and like you said, like a lot more yelling and just like, um, I guess sloganeering is the mm -hmm. way to put sure. it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think at a base level, what I've found is that people have a very hard time of finding the things that they agree upon first. Because mm. um, like, even on a college campus now, like there's a lot of situations that are very much tied to what's going on in the culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously with like, uh, the, there was like, you know, multiple travel bans for a variety of different things. Um, and like the Black Lives Matter movement obviously is a very like current one. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, I would say discouraging from my perspective of like how quickly people just accept positions that don't really have necessarily any backing. Um, or it might have some backing, but they might not know it well, but they just accept it based on what their peers are accepting. So, yeah, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on how you've seen that play out in um, discussions with college students? Um, right now, you're not you know, necessarily working directly with college students anymore, from my understanding, but um, there's obviously both sides. And I think both sides have legitimate like um, positions. But then there are also the extremes of both sides. And I think both sides extremes are more amplified nowadays. I'm not sure that's because of social media, but like 
Um, typically, I found that those discussions are tending more to focus on the extreme aspects rather than on where both sides agree. Yeah, um, I, and I think, I think one, uh, I'm not, and I'm not sure where this exactly comes from historically within the culture, but it definitely feels like we tend to um, trend more towards uh, towards d just in general disagreement than agreement, right? And so you could have like 90% of agreement on a topic with somebody, but you always focus on that 10% that's the disagreement. Um, and and the, the conversation around, well, where do we agree Mm -hmm. never happens if if possible rarely and i think part of that is the uh the culture we live in that's super fast paced in one aspect so when it comes down to what are we going to focus on you want to focus on the disagreement so you each side can try to convince the other one to agree with them um and so that creates dissent rather than focusing on the or even even if you have that conversation the conversation can get cut off without being an extended relational, um, you know, unity and like that we're supposed to have with people. And um, that 90% of agreement, instead of having this like relationship just turns into this 10% argument. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there, I think in one aspect there is that, but I also think that you know, and we're, and we're talking about college students, we're talking about students who are 18 to 22, generally, most often. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's so interesting now that we have information so quickly available to us. Um, and not only uh, is it quickly available to us, but there's so many different ideas that are available to us. And we can just be online and, and even with the different friends we have, we can just go on social media and be bombarded by 10 different thoughts on one specific subject. And, uh, and at that point, especially if they're your friends or if they're people you agree with, you can simply absorb all of those thoughts. And the moment you're having a conversation with somebody, you find that one that fits into that conversation and you throw it out. But it may actually conflict with one or multiple of the other thoughts, but you haven't played it out in your head enough to actually see where the confliction is. And so you hold on to all of these different beliefs that are actually in confliction with one another, but you believe all of them because you actually haven't put thought into them. You've just absorbed and uh, regurgitated. And I think, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, just danger in, in the way that we operate in that way. And I think especially when you're at the college age or even just like, you know, younger in general is like, it's, it's dangerous to think you know more than you actually do or you've experienced more than you've actually experienced just based on how much you've absorbed from the world. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I've, I definitely realized that um, the more I just ask people questions, the more I kind of realize sometimes I'm like, oh, you guys haven't really actually thought out a lot of these mm. <clears throat> points. And um it's also like, I'm not really asking people questions to like get at them necessarily. Like I'm not like trying to make you like 
look stupid or something. I'm just like trying to get you to right. think like what you're actually supporting and why you're supporting those like positions, whatever they might be. Yeah. Um, but I do think like one thing people in general can do is like really just like start with what people agree on, like mm. um, maybe taking like, like the Black Lives Matter, like protest as like an example, like I think most Americans believe that like racism is bad, like on a fundamental level, like there are probably people who are definitely racist out there, but I think on a majority level, like there are, there is general agreement that police brutality is bad and racism is bad. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, what it looks like to address those issues, that's where people disagree, right? Mm-hmm. Um, typically speaking, but because people disagree on how to address those issues, people kind of conflate that disagreement as disagreement with the fact that racism is bad, mm-hmm. right? So like when people say like, uh, oh, we need to fix like, systemic racism or like systemic oppression right um i think most people agree that if there's an issue with systemic racism or oppression like we need to fix those issues obviously um but people might disagree on how to fix those issues and the default for a lot of these conversations is like oh if you don't agree with like my way of fixing the issue then you're probably racist Mm. which i think is a very dangerous line of thought because the moment you do that like you're not having a conversation with another person who agrees with you that racism is bad anymore you're having a conversation with the person that you believe is racist right Mm, um sure and when you get to that point in the conversation you can't really have a conversation um but the the odds are is that that person agrees with you that like right or, or you know police brutality is bad and it's something that should be addressed they might just disagree with you on how to address that um, and I think most people don't get to that point in thought where they realize that because it's very easy to just join the mob on social media mm. on, and the mob can be on either side. It can be on the right or the left or whatever, you know, political affiliation you are. Yeah. And the initial instinct, um, cause I felt this also, it's like the initial instinct is like, if you see a view that you disagree with is to default to that, that person is. Uh, has some ill intent like by default mm. um when on the on the surface level like it seems like that because social media is in the sh- short format most of the time right it's a lot of sloganeering because you can't have a long form discussion on like twitter or like instagram necessarily instagram right. maybe a little bit more so but even then it's like it's very much like you share and you share what someone else has written yeah. And maybe you add a couple lines of like your own thoughts, but you, you're never like having a full on discussion like we are right now in person because right. you're, you're just typing things out. Right? Um, so I don't know. I think that's a little bit, I've seen a lot of people even our age do that. And like, mm-hmm. it, it kind of worries me because it's like, yeah, you and I, like even you and I like might have different perspectives on like the way to address, um, racism or even what systemic racism is i personally think it's a very vague statement and i think like it's it's not very helpful to use that as a term because you're not really pointing to a specific policy or a specific law or even a specific person mm. um sure I'm, I'm a very like specifics guy so like 
Sure. Unless you're unless you're like being specific, I I can't really like. I don't like having those conversations because I'm like, okay, you're just using that term as like a broad coverall to like say that something is wrong. Yeah, and it's hard to come up with a broad solution to a or a vague solution to a vague problem. So unless you can name the problem specifically, you're never actually going to be able to create something that addresses that specific problem. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's interesting. Uh, and, and like, I think the thing that I, I think social media also scares me a ton, which is why f for me personally, and I hope people haven't started like labeling me as the silent non-supporter because I haven't posted anything on social media relating to this. Um, and that's, that's just me not wanting to enter into um, this realm of like perception that I think we live in. And, and here's the thing, I know a lot of people, I know, I know a couple people who are very, very vocal on social media. And, uh, and we probably I think, I, yeah. <laughs> and I think, um, uh, so, and sometimes they actually get people who ask them questions about their view through like, you know, commenting and then they can have a dialogue through chat. And I, but I think that's the, uh, it's, it's just not the norm. I don't think, when it, especially when it comes down to social media, the norm is to see a view, feel conflicted about it, and then engage with it. I mean, not even just the social media, but in general. <laughs> it's like, if this thing is conflicting to me, like, do I want to engage in this conversation? And so what it ends up being is like one person saying something, and then another person saying something or sharing that thing, and then that view kind of just like trickles. Um, and so you kind of are like, oh, these are the people who support it. And then these are the people who don't, or at least it's easy to perceive that way. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on uh, even like surrounding this idea of, you know, things are kind of vague or all of these different voices and like social media projection. I actually heard recently, or I was having a conversation with a friend of mine talking about, um, you know, if we think about what feels like it's missing from the protests that are happening nationwide or XYZ in relation to the, to, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff, uh, is at least for me, the, what I've been seeing is like a hundred voices talking about the same thing, sharing different posts, very sometimes like similar posts. And so the question that always comes in my head is like, am I supposed to rely on all of this? Like, do I, am I supposed to just like take all of this and like believe it? Or is there like a leading voice on this matter? Um, and like, what, like kind of a dumb kind of kitschy thought uh, on it is like, who's gonna be the, the new MLK of this like movement? Right? Do, like, or, or, or do we even need one is kind of the, is the question. It's like, do we need a person or like an organization that's like leading boycotts and protests, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and that's a, legitimate a couple question. days, yeah. I mean, a couple days after I had that uh, conversation with my friend, um, Trevor Noah on YouTube released this uh, panel he had uh, on his show. And there were five, I think there were five people that he was like interviewing and one of them was one of the co-founders for Black Lives Matter and he specifically asked her 
about how it feels like a leaderless movement, not Black Lives Matter specifically, but like what the current movement that's happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was funny because she interjected while he was asking the question and said, Trevor, I think you mean leaderful. And so when he actually asked kind of a similar question, he phrases it probably a lot more eloquently than I will right now, um, but of like, who is the leading voice? Like, who should we be listening to right now? Her response was, I don't think it should be Black Lives Matter. I don't think it should be this other organization that she names. Like, you can go, we have resources on our page. They have resources on their page. But in reality, like, if we put a leader in charge, that person is going to get scrutinized and just completely hated or, like, be in danger. And so why should we put a leader in charge when we can have all of these, like, different leader voices? Like, we don't need a, we don't need, like, a head person. Like, everybody can kind of lead. Mm-hmm. And I have my thoughts on that, but I'm curious to see how you feel about that based on even what you've already said about like kind of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously I think, you know, these protests aren't coming out of nowhere. I think Mm -hmm. just looking at the killings that have happened, like, cause that's really, we got to call them. It's like, those are all like horribly and unjustified. Um, And like, especially with the George Floyd case, like we would hope that justice is being served. And I think, I personally think that it is moving towards that direction. Like Mm. all those cops are now being indicted. Um, So I, but I understand where the the anger and frustration is um, because the perception is that like, that was like a racist, I guess, event. Um, And I think, when you look at the statistics of like police to just general population interactions, you know, there, all this information is like on government websites. But what I found is that a lot of those numbers aren't ever mentioned in these like discussions. Um, Cause like, for instance, the number of uh, people shot by police in 2019 from the Washington post was like around like a thousand two hundred. Um, black individuals um of those like maybe like 19 of them give or take are were black individuals who are unarmed so i think like all of those obviously need to be looked into but when you look at it like from a population-wide level the the claim that like every person who was shot that was like black by a police brand was like a racist event is not necessarily true because like what if those police officers were also black like you don't know that on, on the statistic levels like and you don't you also don't know like what those interactions were like um crime still happens and like right you have to also compare that with like how many white individuals or like asian individuals are also shot like in those police interactions and is there an argument that maybe police training should be better yeah i definitely think there is um, because like, obviously like police interactions with people are always hopefully going to be beneficial, but in the event that like law enforcement has to step in, in dangerous situations, if there is an ongoing crime, like how do you ensure that that is dealt correctly with? Um, mm. and when it comes to Black Lives Matter, like, I think I understand like why people feel there shouldn't be a leader, but the, the problem with having a leaderless 
movement and organization is that it leaves room for the more radical elements to take over and cause things like rioting and looting. Mm. And I think if you have, I think for a logical argument to be consistent, like if you are opposing police brutality, but you're not opposing rioting and looting, which is also violence, I think that those are contradictory in my opinion. Sure. Like, I've seen a lot of people who are saying that rioting and looting are justified because they are, I guess, what, what would they say? Like justified expression of outcry against an oppressive system, right? The whole rioting is the result of the unheard or the response right. of the unheard, yeah. Right, and like, I think that's a very dangerous stance because um, if you justify one form of violence in answer to another form of violence, I don't think you're going to get anything else other than more violence. Mm. Um, so, and I don't know if you've heard of the uh, whole uh, Capitol Hill autonomous zone thing that's happening in Seattle. But, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, but it's like, for me, that's like very concerning because it's literally like a playbook out of the Cultural Revolution in China. And like, like they took over like, you know, a six block radius in Seattle and like, right. Having block parties and stuff from what I've heard. Yeah. But it's also like they renamed the police station, the, the Seattle people's police station. Right. I saw that. Like that. And like they're, it's, the whole point was like, get rid of the cops. Right. But now they have their own like pseudo cop force that are like, oh, stopping and frisking people who enter that zone and they have declared themselves like an autonomous zone from the United States, right? Yeah. So they have a sign that says you are now leaving the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, that's just like very eerie of like what has happened in like the more like, I guess, tyrannical like dictatorships in China and North Korea because that's exactly how they started too. Like, um, mm. so I think we just have to be cautious of um, what those elements are, because when you don't have, a, when you have a leaderless organization, those people are claiming to be supporting Black Lives Matter. Right. Right. And like, if you don't distance yourselves from those sides of the radical elements, then pretty soon your entire movement is going to become that radical element. Mm. Um, and then you're not actually helping anybody and you're not actually helping people who are, um, black citizens in america like you yeah know, you, you're not really benefiting them at all because um you're, you're doing more damage to your cause and like yeah yeah i think it's interesting that there's uh black lives matter the organization and then black lives matter the movement because like now if you say Black Lives Matter, like, and this isn't the case for everybody, but, like, people can associate you with the organization itself. And, like, I haven't done, like, research or extensive research by any means on, like, everything the organization believes or anything like that. And so it's one of those, like, weird, weird trends where it's just, like, yeah, I can agree with this movement. And, like, what I've heard and see that they're supporting, but I don't know about the, what the organization, maybe that's just, I need to do more research, which is probably true. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, I do think it's interesting if you think about it historically and like in a world trending sense of like what this is starting to look like. And it, and it, it does become the question of like, like, uh, or I guess like even it makes me think about uh, kind of like cancel culture and then even uh, in general, like, like the way that we're looking at this is like, okay, we can defund the police. Well, so like, I mean, at this point, there's, there's two things that I feel like I'm hearing all the time is either defund the police or abolish the police. And those are two very different things. And the people who've said abolish police are very like, uh, they've like been vocal to say like, no, we mean abolish, like we're, we are different. Like they have distinguished themselves, um, which I think is interesting. And it, it, it makes me think about kind of what you were saying of like the radical extremists is like, well, what, what are the majority actually like supporting? Um, but then it, it does make me think about, you know, like cancel culture and like how it's so easy that when you disagree with something, the, the hope is burn it to the ground and rebuild it up, right? Like if we have a building, it's like, we don't need to like renovate a floor, just destroy the foundation and build a new building. And so it's kind of the, it's kind of the question of what are, what are we, which of, which of those are we supporting? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, there, there, I think that at this point I have more questions than answers as to the direction we're going to head and then what the hope and the goals are in a reasonable standpoint. Because even if we want to like, you know, like even, even if we were saying like abolishing the police was a good idea, it becomes a question of like, what's the, like how, what's the timeline? Like if we completely do, like how do we preserve any form of law abiding like nature for people so i i it is one of those things where it's just like i don't really fully know what's happening at this point yeah and i mean my personal opinion is that that's a terrible idea (laughs) because um if you remove like just looking at it historically like from the perspective of african-americans specifically um if you look at the like the disparity between income gaps between like african-americans in the past and like let's say white americans just as a group of people sure um a lot of that income disparity is based on living locations right it's like a lot of it was like older laws back in the day that like prevented you know people from moving to certain areas and like right, really, right. like kind of like segregation in like living situations. But the reason like that poverty was significantly amplified was because there was a lack of police in underprivileged communities. Um, and because of that, like the lack of police um, investment created more crime rates, like higher crime rates. And like when you have people like places of higher crime, you're, you're less likely to have business want to do business in those areas. Um, that's just like how businesses operate. Like they're not going to put money in a place where they could just get robbed sure, or like sure. analyzed. Right. So like when you look at places like Detroit and like Chicago, like the inner city areas, like 
a lot of those areas for like the past like 40 years have had really actually significantly less police presence than the more suburban areas. Um, even in Los Angeles, like Los Angeles, like when you're driving around LA, um, you see significantly less cops than if you were driving around somewhere like Orange County. Um, Orange County has like probably about the same, like maybe like half the land area of, of Los Angeles, but you see like, you can easily see two or three cop cars in like a 15 to 20 minute drive in Orange County. Sure. Sure. Um, in LA, like you could be driving 15, 20 minutes and like, maybe you'll see a cop car. Mm-hmm. Like, and if you just think about that, like it's, it's not necessarily like defunding the police will just solve the problem because the police do serve a purpose. And that purpose is to, um, hopefully correctly protect citizens who are abiding by the law um, from people who are not abiding by the law. Um, right. And if you're in a underprivileged community, like um, you really want those cops and those police to be there in a good relationship with the community. Right. They're there in a good relationship with the community. Uh, my belief really is, is that you reduce overall crime rates. And by that point, and in that way, you increase just investment in education in other ways in that community as well. Um, now, obviously there's probably a lot of counter arguments to that. And like, I think people may like disagree with that. And like, it's gonna be different like city to city, but overall, mm-hmm. if you look at like historically where the majority of police funding goes to in the cities across the United States, and especially the South, most of the police funding went to like suburban areas not necessarily like the projects or like um, the actual like underprivileged communities and like mm. those underprivileged communities are typically like have a higher disparity in wealth and income and education, um, mm. but they also had higher crime rates. Um, people were less likely to even finish high school, like inner city LA, like sure. if you had a choice of finishing high school or like joining a gang, like, for a long time, the option was to join a gang. Um, sure. You have to ask yourself, sure. like, why is that? Like, why why is that, like, gangs became such a big option for young people in these underprivileged communities? Like, yeah, they had, um, like, the, and those communities had higher crime rates. Like, there was a lot of gang violence. Like, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, and I see your point and I haven't looked at or your points and I haven't looked at, uh, you know, historically where the funding has gone or how much police has been present in these different areas. Um, but it, hmm. in some ways it does still sound like the it still does sound like these neighborhoods that were affected by these laws that segregated people mm-hmm. and created areas that were uh you know considered worth less value wise um 
I think, I think one aspect of it is like, we can't say that there weren't like, you know, businesses in these neighborhoods that like came up that were like benefiting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Because at that point, at least in my head, it sounds like almost white savior-y type where it's like, oh, these specific organizations are like Whole Foods needs to go in or like gentrification-y rather than saying like, oh, these neighborhoods have, you know, local mom and pop shops or like yeah. neighborhood run, like convenience stores, et cetera, et cetera, you know, restaurants, all that. Um, I mean, I don't know if it needs to be like considered white savory because like, I don't think you can just attribute like race to a business. Like, like they may be more like culturally, you might associate right. like Whole Foods, for example, as more with white people. But you have to ask yourself, is that because like the access to those types of resources are just based on the existing income gaps? Like, sure, right, because you know, Whole Foods is present in more white neighborhoods and is able to be afforded by white people more often than black people. Right. I mean, I, it's, I think it's interesting also um, for us to have this conversation <laughs> and to like touch on these points because we're in neither <laughs> of those <laughs> races and we both come from immigrant households. And so we're also like first generation here. Um, and so, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel not less invested in the conversation, but it's a, it's, it's a personal relationship that's just less existent because, uh, I mean, my family has lived here for 35 years. And that's like the, ex that, like the extent of my family history in America. And so when it comes down to like, oh, what was going on with policing or what was going on with these laws like in the 1900s and stuff, it's like, I'm just trying to like grapple with the, that reality. Um, yeah. And that hasn't affected me like deeply by any means. Um, and so to me, it's like, it's like, and, and uh, like you're saying, like you're a very specific person. So you want to look at the statistics and you want to like analyze the data and see how it's affected who and like the trends that have happened and all of those things. And there's obviously so much benefit to that because if we're not looking at historically, if we're not looking at what's happened historically, like we can't understand what's happening now, right? Because this isn't happening in a vacuum. It wasn't like, oh, George Floyd died. Now it's spread like wildfire, but it's been this you know, as people will say, it's the 400 year journey of from slavery to now of what has happened. Um, and I think for me, being a person who isn't extremely data driven and is not going to sit down and look at all of the data to try to come up with my own conclusions. Um, at least for me, like the place that I end up landing is like, I want to have those these charitable conversations and I want to like hear from people on all of the different perspectives and it's not to like not and it's not 
it one, it's not to like form my opinion based on that because I can't form my opinion based on everybody else's opinion. Like that's just not going to happen. But it's really just to be able to like sit down and like empathize with people and hear where they're coming from. Uh, because even like you said in the beginning is like the majority of people are going to agree like racism is bad. And the problem I think with a lot of the people uh, with a lot of the people who are not willing to say like uh like i'm a racist or like just vocally you know call out like different pockets of like what a lot of people are saying are racism now is out of the fear of like identifying with it right and so like um like even the whole thing with like amy cooper and christian cooper in in new york the bird watching incident it's like that woman literally afterwards was like I was just scared, like I'm not a racist, but it's like, but what you did was affected by a history of racism. And so in, in it's, it's like, you may not be like identified as a racist, but like that behavior was racist. <laughs> and I think being able to like call that out is important. And like, for a person like that, it's like, unless you're willing to sit down, have a conversation, that empathizes with like where she's come from and like how that's formed her and like have her like see the trend, then she's just going to get stuck in this, like, I'm not racist. And I think that's, I mean, that might not be true across the board, but I think it's true with a lot of people that like, until we sit down with people, have relational conversations, yeah, people aren't going to shift or like even adapt their own point of view or grow in their point of view right like we want to be able to empathize with people because there are people who are hurting on one end and then there are people I mean in the extremes it's like there are a lot of people who are hurting and there are a lot of people who are afraid to connect with that hurt because it, they think that they're going to get hurt if they empathize with that hurt which that, that doesn't have to be that way they can empathize with the hurt and they don't have to be labeled like I mean even if they are labeled racist, like who, like who cares? Like when, when did racism become so bad that you can't say like, I have racism, racism in me, thus I'm like a, a leper to society. Like if the reality is we're well, saying everybody think, has racism in them. Yeah, I think part of it is because people are actually losing their jobs over it now. Like- People are what? Actually losing their like jobs and their livelihoods over it, mm. right? It's like, because we've created this culture where um like cancel culture like you were saying earlier like because we created this culture where if you say anything that anyone perceives is out of line with like their worldview they can just immediately mob you like on social media and the result now is that you can actually lose your job true yeah so so because of that like why would people step out and like it makes people less willing to step out and empathize because if they, yeah. even if they do empathize and they empathize and word it the wrong way, or if someone perceives they word it the wrong mm-hmm. way, like they're going to get attacked. So like, mm-hmm. um, that's another issue with like social media. It's like, I think, yeah, I think it's very important to like empathize with, um, you know, black Americans who have suffered like, um, but I think it's also very very important not to just attack someone who makes a mistake like oh for sure if they're willing to learn like then 
you should be able to have that conversation with them and like have an empathetic conversation with each other and like both learn from yeah. it. Um, yeah. I, think, I think the important thing is that you both need to learn from it. You can't just like shove down, like shove your view down someone's throat. And that's typically what happens now. It's like, mm-hmm. there's kind of like this whole like, um, and I think I call it like the, uh, a woke religion, so <laughs> to speak, where you like, it's, it's weird because like, it acts kind of as like a religious entity where you have like certain tenets of wokeness that you have to accept and say. And if sure. you don't say them correctly, then people will just attack you. Yeah. Um, um, and that's like pretty much the case in academia right now too. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting because like from a religious perspective, like most people wouldn't say they're religious, but they kind of act in this religious like manner where it's like, mm-hmm. if you don't accept the beliefs of wokeness, <laughs> as sure. I call it, like the woke beliefs, um, then you'll be ostracized. Right. As radicals, so more or less. Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting because like, there's this narrative that like, racism is solely reserved for like white people mm. and I, I don't know about I don't know about you because like we both come from Asian backgrounds and like we're more than aware that like racism exists like outside the subgroup of white people like right um, right and like whoops that's fun um so like aside from like like the belief that uh like, I think there's this belief that, like, Asian Americans and African Americans are, like, somehow immune from racism. Um, and I don't believe that's true, because I've, I've seen some pretty racist things said by African Americans towards white people. Um, right. Like, the one that comes to mind, like, most prominently was, like, I think Don Lemon on CNN. He said something along the lines of, like, all white people have this virus of racism. And they just don't know that they had this right virus of race. Like it was about the, it was about the, the that woman in the park. Like, um, mm. all all white people had this virus of racism, and that somehow like they they don't even know it, but it'll trigger some at some point. Mm-hmm. And like on the surface level, I like I kind of get what he's getting at. Like, like sure. maybe maybe there's something that like has affected them where they have this this bias that is like like a little bit racist, but then if you think about that statement in and of itself, it's a broad generalization of all white people, mm-hmm. which is in itself racist, like, towards mm-hmm. white people. Like, you're just assuming that all white people are, uh, you know, innately racist based on the color of their skin, which is racism. Mm-hmm. Like, that is also yeah. racism. So I think it's, like, it's, it's very interesting because, like, when you're talking about racism is obviously a difficult subject. Yeah. But I don't think it's like somehow solely reserved for white people. Like there are probably yeah. white people who are definitely racist. Like that's without a doubt. But like we, you and I probably both know from our experience with like Asian history in general, like there's a lot of racism like around the world, like oh, for sure. Um, within like, you know, China itself, like, China's not really one ethnicity, but, like, 
it has become one ethnicity due to like kind of a governmentally enforced racism through kind right. like yeah yeah and i think uh and it's interesting even with that specific example you brought up um it's interesting because like with this new newer uh phrase of like being anti-racist is like part of the idea behind that is that like the system that the institutions that we have lived in for so long within this country Mm. specifically like with just to analyze it in terms of this country is people would say that like the institutions have made it so that like everybody has like aspects of racism within them and like when those come out at certain times like it's just it's just the air we breathe and so even at that point it's like yeah you could say that like maybe you're gonna say like all white people have this like air of racism inside them but but literally based on the whole the movement as a whole and like the narrative that it's being pushed is at that point you might as well just say everybody does right like why are you why are you classifying it in the specific race and i and i also think i mean the the danger in all of this in general is just like generalizing like we 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 talk about how like in we always like people often talk about how like individualistic Western society is, but I think more and more we're not we're not realizing how much we're shifting into these like subgrouping like pockets, um, and it's creating you know generalizations and assumptions that people make. Where it's like at this point, you know, I have friends who are like, if I enter a room with like uh, that is just like you know, is, is a person that's not white and they are like, oh, if I enter a room with all white people, then like, I feel like I have to always be like ready and always be on edge. And it's just, and in one way it's like, yeah, that's scary. That's, it's scary that you've experienced so often or at least been told so often that like in this setting, you're not safe. But then it's also scary that like that has created something in this person where like just because they're in a room with white people, their assumption of those white people, even if they've never met, even if they've never met those people before, it's like, how is that going to be the assumption that you're going to, you're just going to place in that moment? Um, Yeah. So I, so I think, I think in the end, like the whole the whole thing about all of this in general is like, we can't, we can't have these conversations and not allow them to be complicated and nuanced. And, be, and part of that, like we have to be willing to, to have these conversations off of social media. That doesn't mean we can't use social media to advocate for certain things, but like there has to be conversations and there has to be a relationship and there has to be a willingness to empathize and a willingness to like, to like take risks, to say wrong things, to be in places that don't seem safe to you, yeah. to like create new, to create new beliefs, to create new like core beliefs that are, would make me say like, I can step into this room and I don't have to make assumptions right now, which yeah. is hard. Like that's super mm-hmm. hard for people to do. Yeah. It's hard for me to do. It's just, it's a difficult reality that we live in. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's also me. Like I, when I do engage in social media, it's never like a broad post anymore. It's like, 
I see someone post something and I usually message them like privately. Mm. Um, if I do talk to them and I'm just trying to, I usually ask them like, okay, like why do you support this? And like, have you thought about this? Or have mm. you noticed this aspect that might be a little bit of an issue with what you're supporting? Um, and I've been trying to do that. And even then it's like, it's not the same as like you having a conversation here right now because like, yeah, even though we, we probably disagree on some aspects of things like we both are here and we can tell that we both are genuinely trying to like engage in a discussion that we both know is difficult yeah and i think that's that's still a loss in social media even when you're trying to do like private conversations like it's very easy to read text and then just assume like this person's coming at you sure yeah. whereas like i don't think that's what i'm that that wasn't my intent but i don't know if yeah. they're that and they don't know you, if I'm you just... impose tone on the words that you're reading <laughs> right exactly like you you can read the text in the way that you would assume that person is reading it in the tone that's reading it, and not necessarily yeah. in the way that they're actually trying to approach you as like yeah like if i were to say any of the things i said in this conversation over text there's probably tons of ways that people would have taken that as like oh that's kind of like a jab or something and I was like no it's not yeah. a jab I'm just like bringing it up as a discussion a topic like to see if we can like you know I don't know just discuss it and see like oh like Underst- know, understand what's happening what is the response <laughs> that is like like there you know and like um yeah I think it's very important for us to maybe reduce the amount we just like the, the urge is to just like share and like retweet things that we like immediately agree with. Mm. Like that's how these platforms are created. Like they're designed to do that where it's like your gut instinct to just like share what you agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, like you were saying, people don't think about what is tied to that post or tied to that social media share. Also, like if you just like, like, you know, the whole Instagram thing where everyone put, like, a black whatever for Black Lives Matter. It's, like, yeah. by doing that, you show solidarity, right? Yeah. You would assume. But it's, like, yeah. what else is tied with that that you're supporting that you might not actually support? Like, yeah. Um, it's, like, did you do it because everybody did it? Or do you actually know what the, like, what, like, most people didn't even know what the purpose of Blackout Tuesday was. To the point where I started seeing on that Tuesday people starting to post on their uh, like stories being like, hey, before you actually do that, like look at this and like realize that by doing it, you're literally going against the purpose of the day. Because the purpose of the day was to highlight black voices. But then by everybody posting that thing, you could never find a black person talking because everybody, all you could see were the black squares. And it was just like, what, what are we doing right now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like- The herd mentality. It's, it is a herd mentality. And I think that's important because like, that is the default human condition. Like, mm. like, yeah, there are some aspects about individualism that is maybe negative. Like you can become too individualistic where you become selfish, right? That's definitely something that can happen. But individualism is important in these conversations because mm-hmm. when you're having a conversation with an individual, you cannot assume that individual is part of a greater group based on aspects that you see up firsthand. Right. You can't just have a conversation with me and just assume things about me because I'm Asian, because I would be racist. 
right? And that's like yeah. why individualism is important. And like, that's why you need to approach each person as an individual to a certain degree. Yeah. And also just like, I think it's very interesting because on one hand, there's the view that hate, hate speech is violence, whatever that means, right? Um, yeah. That's a very widely used term. But in the past couple of weeks, they've also said silence is violence. So like, if hate speech is violence and silence is also violence, like, what does that mean? Your Everything. only option is to support. <laughs> yeah, the only option is to say exactly what they want you to say. Yeah. And again, that goes back to the herd mentality thing. It's like, yeah, you either conform or you get ostracized. And that's where I like, that's kind of like a woke religion. Like, yeah, yeah, it yeah. has a lot of religious aspects about it. Or I, at the very least, a collectivist aspect yeah. about it. And like, I understand like the intent is to like solve these really, really serious issues that we do need to solve. Yeah. Um, but you can't just like browbeat people into like joining your movement because that will eventually create more issues than it will solve. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's complicated. A lot, a lot of things to consider. Very important to have these extended conversations. We can't just look at the news. We can't just look at social media. We can't just rely on the voice of our friends. We actually have to like engage. Yeah, but and we talked about it a lot, so we did. It <laughs> might be a, a pretty good place to end it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess one last question is uh, how are you as a person doing in this time? Like how how are you? Just like yeah, because like just as friends, like I want to check in with you and see like how you're doing. Yeah. You know, uh, I'd say overall, uh, <laughs> it's things are going. You know, yeah. Uh, it it's 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 one of those things where I feel like right now it's hard to put words to it because I feel like every day is just like like what's the next thing right like the last couple of days like I just started seeing like 10 new names of people you know people being hung on trees and all this stuff and I think it's just it's hard to not be emotionally distressed by the realities of what is happening um and especially when most of the news that's being propelled is all of the negative stuff it's just it's exhausting and I, I think the only things that have been really helpful for me is just um, taking moments to disengage, which like, it's the funny thing where it's like, people will tell you like rest is important. Like we're like rest is resistance is even something I've heard. But at the same time, you also hear the people who are like, but if you disengage, then like you don't support the cause, but it's like, okay, but I need like a day or something. Right. Um, and so I feel like, those conflicting ideas have just created this like confliction in me where it's just like, if I take a rest day, like I feel shamed about it, mm. even though like I need it. And so I feel like every day has just been kind of emotionally distressing to a degree. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we are all in that state right now. Um, yeah. And even just physically, it does affect you physically too. Cause like, yeah. When you're emotionally distressed, like you're less likely to sleep well. And you're also, because you're less likely to sleep well, you're more likely to have like health, physical health related issues come up 
over an extended sure. time. Um, just medically speaking, from what I do know, like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, dude, I, I hope you, uh, you know, continue to stay healthy and. Yeah, this was a good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Where can uh, people find you on social media? If you want to engage in social media, I don't know. You don't have to. <laughs> or if you don't want uh, to find you. Don't, don't look for me on social media. I don't post. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to find me, get in touch with Chris. He'll give you my phone number. 